Hi, Stella. Hiya, Sasha. How's it going? It's going well. So we went down under for the day. Yeah, we went to the land down under. We met Dr. Gillian Spencer and she, she's a beautiful person. Psychiatrist, yeah. but child and adolescent, but extraordinary gentle energy. And then the bravery of a lion, that combination. Yeah. And, you know, she's 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 kind of been through what a lot of clinicians have quietly been through. And we, I think we captured it well in this episode, just a kind of a, a slow, kind of compelling story of how somebody can be ousted and alienated by a yeah. clinic. And all she was trying to do was bring information. I know. About gender to the clinic. Yeah. And it was interesting to hear her story because like so many people who are kind of in the whistleblowing category, yeah. she started out really believing it. She, she shared a story yeah. about a colleague from the gender clinic who basically explained that they have the magic stuff to figure out the true trans kids versus the not true trans kids. And for yeah. a while she was like, Believing that. As and you called it, she, the, the trans dar. <laughs> yeah, the trans dar, like a gay dar for yeah. trans. And, and I mean, it was remarkable to hear just the way at first she totally believed that this was possible to identify totally. like who future trans are. And then little by little, things came across her radar, which created doubt in her. And she did so many remarkable little things to try and earnestly share what she was learning with her bosses, with her colleagues, with her coworkers. And there were all of these little moments where things just kind of blew up. And then yeah. her story kind of comes to this big crescendo when she was removed from her clinical duties in 20, uh, 2023. Just um, and recently. even the, the email bio, I mean, she put in her email bio or her signature adult human female not realizing that this is going to create a huge stir. So she does have this incredible gentleness and then very bold and brave decisions that she made to try and kind of resist the push of putting kids onto this gender path. And she, she met with resistance, but she, she was stalwart. She kept yeah. going. She did get resistance and she just kept going. So it's, it's a, it's an emotional interview, but it's, it's well worth listening to. Absolutely. So I'll just read you a little bit about Gillian Spencer. She's a child and adolescent psychiatrist who lives in Queensland, Australia. She studied medicine at Monash University in Melbourne and then subsequently trained in psychiatry. She completed her subspecialty certificates in child and adolescent psychiatry and forensic psychiatry, and she talks a little bit about having worked in the prison system. She qualified as a psychiatrist in 2009 and has worked for Queensland Health for 21 years. In mid-April 2023, she was removed from her clinical duties due to being considered a danger to trans and gender diverse children. Since her story came out in the media in June, she has two she has tried to raise awareness of the concerns around gender interventions for children. So we hope that you enjoy our lovely conversation with Dr. Gillian Spencer. Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. 
Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hi, Stella, and welcome, Jillian. Hello. It's great to have you here. Uh, we're, we're, we're kind of honored in Jen's effect to have you um, as, you know, as a, a very special valued member of Jen's effect. But like, we don't have enough in our podcast of other countries and especially Australia we've neglected. So hopefully we'll get an influx of Australians seeking to be on our show after today. Oh, but, I hope so. Yeah, I hope <laughs> so be too. Wonderful. Because when when I used to do the GDSN, the Gender Dysphoria Support Network, and we used to do, uh, it's still going, but I used to do it. And we used to do these parent meetings and we'd have parents from Australia dialing in at three in the morning, four in the morning, five in the morning with the most harrowing stories. And I used to think, what is going on in Australia? What is, and the most isolated people. And yeah. so I'm so glad that you're our first guest because I think what's happened to you is so extraordinary that I, 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 I'm really glad you're here to talk to us. Thank you. And I, um, Australia would be nowhere if it wasn't for the Tavistock and all the work of the people in England. So yeah, it's really great to um, be here too. And oh, my agenda for this podcast is not to cry. Um, but Aww. yeah, just with your podcast, I was listening to it a lot through some really dark times. So I just wanted to thank you for your work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. A lot of comfort from it. That's really nice to hear. It's amazing too, because sometimes it's hard for us to gauge where, how far are we reaching? Mm. And like, are therapists who are looking for, you know, a a resounding kind of like familiar question or or conversation around gender, are they finding us? So it's really nice to hear that that you have found us. That's great. Well, before we jump into the gender piece, we just wanted to get a little bit of kind of get to know you, Jillian, because you're a psychi- adolescent psychiatrist, child and adolescent psychiatrist. And we'd love to hear a little bit about how you got interested in that work and what you were doing before things kind of evolved as they have in the last several years. Yeah, so um, I went through medical school in, in Melbourne at Monash University and um I did enjoy, I really enjoyed the whole program. There's lots of areas of medicine that were of interest. But ever since I was a kid, I've always had a um, a reaction of fainting to blood. And, you know, I was always told <laughs> that I'd grow out of it. <laughs> and um, so I was always a bit nervous about it. You know, like I'd cut my finger and, you know, faint. Like it was ridiculous. And um, But, yeah, I was always thought I'd grow out of it. And I did manage to survive because... Um, I in my internship I managed to find out if I wore two sets of Ted stockings and I could go into the surgery and assist and I wouldn't faint. Um, so that was a relief. I did still find it a bit yucky, like I wasn't attracted to surgery. <laughs> I did, I wait, did nobody it. did nobody say when you were going into medical school? Uh, will we discuss <laughs> the issue? <laughs> <laughs> well, the first three years are non-clinical, so you're just you know in a university room in a, in a lecture. Almost okay, the time, or cool yeah, and I really thought I was going to grow out of it, and yeah, so I think I could have, like, I could have, if I just worn Ted stockings, two sets of Ted stockings every day, all day, while I was working, I probably could have survived. But it, it just wait, became wait, this wait. thing. I'm sorry, what's Ted stockings? Me too. Oh, sorry, sorry. They're, <laughs> it's um, okay. They're they're thick, tight stockings that mean that the blood doesn't pull in the veins in your calves, so you don't faint. Oh, compression socks. Yes, basically. yes, oh, but they go all the way socks. up the thigh. Oh, yeah, so I okay. think it is a physiological thing where, I mean, 
oh, maybe it's rubbish, but fish seem to have this um, fainting in response to blood. Maybe that's, I don't know, I might have picked that really? up from somewhere. Not incredible, okay, but, so um, do you identify as a fish then, Julia? <laughs> like, yeah. How do we know I, when I a fish see. faints? <laughs> that's such a good question. Stella's asking the philosophical questions early on in the podcast. Okay, so basically you got through your training any time that it might make you nauseous by wearing these compression stockings. So you're basically saying, I probably could have worn those the whole way and gone through into another specialty, but I'm imagining you went into psychiatry because you knew there was no blood when everything is going well. There's no blood in psychiatry. Yeah, and I, I did. I was what? attracted to the, um, you know, I was really interested in it as well. It just seemed to be a natural fit and um, in the night started working in the area as an intern and enjoyed it and so it just all worked out great and so where, I, where were you working first were you like in a hospital setting or what kind of patients were you seeing uh, at the beginning of your career oh as an intern you do um, blocks and you have to rotate between different disciplines so um, so I did have to do 10 weeks of surgery and um, and then you know 10 weeks of you know um, medicine which is like being in a ward, you know, gastroenterology yeah. ward or something like that, and then mm-hmm. um, ten weeks in the emergency department, and then I think I did a five-week elective in psychiatry and another elective which I can't remember. Sorry, but yes, yeah, so in moving around, and then just working in the hospital as a junior doctor for a couple of years, and then choosing a specialty, and then with the specialty training in psychiatry in Australia, it takes about five years if you get through your exams first time. Okay, and then you move between so the adult wards. And then you go into, you do a six-month basic rotation in child and adolescent psychiatry, you also do psychiatry of old age and consultation liaison psychiatry. And then in your advanced training, you can choose to do a subspecialty. Um, so I did subspecialty training in child and adolescent psychiatry, but I also did subspecialty training in forensic psychiatry. So I um, did those two streams and then finished training in 2009. And so I've worked as a psychiatrist since 2009 Okay, um, did... so we entered the field around the same time. Sorry, go ahead. Ah, Stella. yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, did you did you like it? Did you take to it? Um, just as a field, was it, were you in the right place? I think I was. Um, I oh, I I wonder whether I was a bit too serious at times, and I could have relaxed a bit. I um, I know I I did with my first set of oral exams. I did heaps of practices, you know, really put my heart and soul into practicing. But at the end of that, um, I realized that I'd sort of used some jargon and I had absorbed jargon without fully understanding it. And that was a big learning curve to go back and have to repeat those exams, which was, um, you know, first time I'd sort of failed at something, I think, well, that I, yeah. And, um, and have to really come to grips with, oh, what do I know? And, um, yeah. It was actually a you know a really good experience in the end to have to repeat. I mean, it was frightening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I was pregnant yeah. for the um, repeat exam. Oh, wow. and they had this rule where if you didn't get through, you had to wait a year before you could sit it again. Where otherwise you're waiting six months normally. So it felt like there was a lot riding on it because um, I didn't want to spend all my you know time with my first baby studying. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> so so you pa- you passed the second round, I'm guessing, and then you yes. Went- into the field. So when you went into the field after qualifying, 
were you working um, in private practice with children and adolescents or were you in like a psychiatric unit in a hospital? Where were you? Oh, yes. So, um, okay. So I'd finished as a psychiatrist and then, oh, I had to finish off my forensic certificate. So I worked in the prison for a little bit and then I got a job in child and adolescent psychiatry about a year later and so have worked um, since then in a variety of child and adolescent settings, so community clinics and um, juvenile detention centres, so child and adolescent forensic services, emergency department, inpatient units. Wow. Um, I've worked in all, all settings, really. I don't think there's a setting with, you know, telehealth to remote and then visiting right. remote centres. Yeah, it's been lots of different experiences. And when did when did you first notice or have any experience with gender? When did that first come in the door? Yeah, well, the gender clinic in where I live, so I live in Queensland and Brisbane is the capital city and the gender clinic is in the hospital where I work or did work. <laughs> um, so I started working in the hospital about 2014 and... The gender clinic got set up in operation, clinically operational in 2017. And so after that, we all started seeing more and more adolescents come through who were through the emergency department or through the mental health wards or through the pediatric wards who were identifying as trans and undergoing gender treatments. So I was working in the child unit at that time, which is a statewide inpatient unit for kids who are 12 and under and so we used to have kids coming through there you know girls saying that they were boys and it was a bit tricky because I felt like I'd gotten a lot of experience talking to children and of course you know stereotypes don't aren't always applicable but you sort of get a feel for how children of a certain age are and Mm -hmm. so I'd meet these girls and they'd tell me you know, obviously they'd be identifying as a boy, but they wouldn't in any way in the interaction feel like a boy in the way that they were talking or thinking or interacting or so, you know, so you, I remember one girl was telling me that, you know, she'd, she had another friend, she and another friend were both identifying as boys, but then they'd get together and they'd, I'd say, you know, I'd say to them, oh, I said to her, what do you do, you know, when you get together with your friend? And she said, oh, you know, we, we talk and we pat the cat. And <laughs> in my experience of, you know, like 10, 11, 12-year-old boys is that they'd be more likely to be out riding their bikes or playing on a computer game or doing doing something. And I know that's a stereotype, but I'm just sort of saying that in no way did was there any they, – they just weren't convincing in any way for actually mm. being atypical mm-hmm. for girls. Mm-hmm. And so it just felt like it was a – extra layer of something on top that wasn't actually part of their fabric. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good metaphor. And did you discuss it with anybody or were you kind of speaking about it with your colleagues or had you read anything online? I don't know what sort of year we are now, if there was anything to read online. I think this is about 2018. And back then it wasn't, it, we weren't talking about it openly, but behind closed doors in the consultant's office, the consultants, it didn't seem like a big deal back then, I think. we I remember having these discussions where we just thought, oh, gee, 
this is a bit weird, isn't it? And it doesn't seem to be very productive. I remember one psychiatrist said, oh, I just think it's a psychological cul-de-sac. <laughs> Do you guys know what a cul-de-sac is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, we just sort of were a bit sceptical of whether this was actually progress in someone's life to, to have a trans mm-hmm. identification. But that was when we all spoke a bit more openly it behind closed doors. Um, but it wasn't so much of an issue out in the... Um, the wards and that because it wasn't so common, but it just became increasingly more common. I guess one of the concerning things was when I was working in the child unit, there was a policy in the hospital that any child who presented with suicidality, either to the emergency department or some kids are admitted with suicidality, would get fast-tracked into the gender clinic within a matter of days or a week. Wait, so even s- if they're not presenting with gender problems? or Oh, sorry, no, no, sorry. Okay, if they okay. had... If they had gender problems and, and comorbid, yes, they yes. get fast tracked. So, th- so previously, really no mm, chance sorry. for assessment from you. Oh, we'd be we'd be in the inpatient unit trying to mm. work on their issues and coming up with a complex formulation about the reasons for their very high levels of distress. But because gender was one of their presenting issues, that would trigger fast-tracking their gender treatments, which meant that they got into the clinic within a matter of days. And at that time, the idea was that the waiting list was very long, but this was, um, yeah, so then, and I guess the the issue with that is that the kids would um, be buoyed by the, oh, I'm getting into the gender clinic quick, and it would be a, um, a, a thing that would shut down the exploration of all the much more complex grief and family yeah. complexity and abuse or whatever it was mm-hmm. in their background um, that was making them so distressed. It's such a good point you raise. It's it's happening hugely in Ireland. They're all waiting to get into the gender clinic, waiting, 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 not doing anything because they're waiting. They mm. might as well be in a queue, literally mm. a physical queue, if you follow me. Yeah. There's nothing exploratory going on because they're waiting for the day that the big gate opens and they get into the clinic and their life begins. So it's so psychologically um, closing. It's 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 very, very, yeah. it's not good for a kid to have three years on a waiting list, waiting for the big event. Then they get into the clinic. This is Ireland, I am. They get into the clinic like, give me, give me the hormone treatment. Do you know what I mean? And there has been, it's exactly the wrong way to, to go at this with a kid. It's, it's so, um, it's so constricting for their mind. It's really unfortunate. I fully agree. And um, earlier this year, one of my bosses gave a big presentation at a conference on the topic of gender and psychiatry. And he was saying that because the waiting list is over a year, that that is evidence that the kids that do end up coming through the door are persistent, consistent and insistent. And hmm. therefore, by definition, you know, meeting part of the criteria for for. Uh, gender dysphoria and then having a medical pathway but I really feel like that ignores that there is this psychology about humans which is waiting as a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow effect I'm not sure what the right metaphor is but there's something there that stops yeah yeah well because I think that the mind gets gets fixed on that pot of gold and so then you can't actually see everything going on around you and it's also you know, the story that adults are telling children about what the children need. 
And the, the power of that kind of authority and guidance from the adults in your life is very, very powerful. Whereas, because a waiting list is very different from saying, you know, we recognize that you're having gender dysphoria, but we're actually not going to talk about gender transitions. We're going to talk about your life and your well-being and your mental health. So when an adult says, well, we'll put you on a waiting list for gender, it kind of fixes the child's mind that gender is the answer. Mm -hmm. I agree. Exactly. We'd like to jump in here really quick and offer up a thank you to Genspect, one of our sponsors. Genspect is an international organization that offers a healthy approach to sex and gender. Genspect recently hosted the Bigger Picture Conference in Denver, Colorado. There, they introduced the Gender Framework, a comprehensive, non-medical means of dealing with distress about gender issues. Go to genspect.org to learn more. We'd also like to give a shout out to Geta, Gender Exploratory Therapy Association. If you're looking for a therapist for yourself or your child, check out the Geta directory. And if you're a clinician who is questioning the affirmation model and you're looking for resources and community, please consider joining Geta today. Visit genderexploratory.com to learn more. Can I ask a question that goes back a little bit in the chronology? Because you mentioned that in 2014 you started working in this unit and in 2017 they opened the gender clinic, right? In your hospital. Yes. I'm really curious, between 2014 and 2017, were you seeing kids coming in with gender-related complaints? And if so, what was done with those kids before the the gender clinic opened? Yeah, I wasn't seeing them myself. They weren't the kids that would come through the emergency department, you know, with the long history of self-harm, all those sort of complex teenagers. The kids that were coming to the hospital back then were the little kids with the early onset cross-sex identification, predominantly boys, mm-hmm. and kids that have had had, had um, actual issues with, you know, disorders of sexual development or ambiguous genitalia. Okay. So yeah. they all saw one of the paediatricians and a psychologist in the hospital. It was only small numbers. And my understanding is that at that time there wasn't any use of puberty blockers I'm not sure of that but in when I remember overhearing those cases that were discussed in one of the teams I was in they were mainly just talking about play behavior and helping parents to come to terms with the situation it seemed to Mm -hmm. really change with the establishment of the gender clinic wow yeah so then behind closed doors yourself and colleagues were referring to this as you know that I love that actually analogy of the like a cul-de-sac, like it's yeah. kind of a dead end. Like you kind of have to get out of it the same yes. way you came back in almost. I think that's yes. a really clever. Um, meanwhile, though, these kids were being placed into the gender clinic waiting list or if they presented with suicidality, they were getting fast tracked in. So um, I know, of course, you've shared your concerns about this more recently, which we'll get to, but like what was your level of involvement or knowledge about what was happening in the gender clinics that were opened in your hospital? Yes. When they set up the gender clinic, we were given education sessions about that and it was all about the usual lies, I'll say, of, you know, hi, this is life-saving care and the suicide risk is just catastrophic if we don't give it. And I think none of us around the clinic really knew quite 
anything different and we just you know accepted what we'd be we were being told by people that we'd worked with for a long time and trusted i remember in about 2018 i spoke to the team leader of the gender clinic i think i might have had some misgivings i'm not sure but i sort of raised it with her to try and understand what was happening um not in a full-on way but i think i was mm. curious and i remember that she spoke about how they had such experience that they really knew how to pick the true trans child and that has been a theme with my hospital's gender clinic in that they've really you know had these sort of smoke and mirrors <laughs> um, that they have some expertise that the rest of us don't and it's taken a lot of us quite a while to figure out that there isn't anything there that they're just wow. they've got the, the same assessment you know they've got the same knowledge that we do yeah so Such i was talking to her <laughs> it actually took us ages to figure out, you know, what are they doing? Is there, is there something they know that we don't? You know, what is it that we're missing? It was so so much doubt. But I remember her oh, saying, wow. yeah, so I remember her saying, oh, yeah, we know how to weed out the confused lesbians. And then she did say that, that as proof of their knowledge of how to pick the right kids, that every single child that they'd started on puberty blockers except one <laughs> had um, continued and that one had stopped because of a needle it's phobia. Magic. Yeah, it's magic. And then um, I was really clumsily trying to grasp for, you know, trying to convey a concern. And I, you know, I'd been working in forensics. So I was saying to her, oh, well, I know it's a silly sort of comparison, but I know in with, you know, psychopathy in children that most kids aren't psychopathic, you know, and but it's the kids, the people that end up psychopathic, they often become so because they've had re repeated experiences of violence perpetrating violence you know in peers and they become changed by mm. that and it you know reinforces and and I was trying to convey to her oh is there a issue with you know this pathway reinforcing itself and I mean of course she took offense to the um <laughs> to the comparison um but I was clumsily trying to find my way through a question there that um, wasn't really yeah. answered I hear you. And when she said about the, the kind of only one kid went off puberty blockers and that was because of a needle phobia, did you think, really? Or did you think, oh, wow, you, you really are geniuses at picking these kids? I did. I fell for it, hook, line and sinker. Uh, yeah, I'd worked with that woman in a different service for years and there was that relationship there and I would never have dreamed that they would be harming children. I know they don't think they're harming children, but I just would never have dreamed that they would. Can I just ask now, this is just personal curiosity, but you said you worked with this particular clinician in another setting. Was she also doing gender related stuff in the other setting? No, this is in a So she got the magic knowledge really, really quickly and then started doing it <laughs> at the new setting where you work together. Uh, yeah, I don't know her pathway, but I guess, yeah, I trusted that she knew what she was doing. I guess... In, in the clinic in my hospital, I, almost all the clinicians are gay, lesbian or have a, you know, trans identification or some, mm -hmm. um, you know, queerness. Oh, yeah. So there is that sort of element of um, trusting that as well. It's almost like, you know, the term gaydar, how like, you know, colloquially it's joked around about that gay people mm. have a gaydar and they can just spot like a gay person. And I'm sure there's some truth to that. But when you start taking that theory and putting children in the hands of clinicians who just claim to have a transdar of some kind, I mean, Good that's point. unbelievably reckless. 
It is. It is. Okay. Uh, so at what point did you, I mean, you, you were asking questions about maybe the pathway and you were stumbling for something. Do you remember any particular things that happened that allowed you to see it clearly? Because, you know, just earlier you said, I, I bought it hook, line and sinker. So at some point yeah. you were trying to believe that what's happening is fine and everything's true. What point did you just kind of realize that wasn't quite the case? Yeah, well, I think it did happen gradually, but um, so in about 2020, there's a journalist in Australia called Bernard Lane who's done a lot of great work. We know him well. Um, yes, yeah, we yeah, do. and um, he published a graph which showed about an increase in the numbers of the kids attending and enrolled in gender clinics. And so um, someone showed me that, and I I sent it into the Queensland Child Psychiatrist Google group saying, oh, you know, look at this graph. Um, is there any explanation why the numbers have skyrocketed and but the message um given back by the director was no those numbers aren't true that's incorrect and please don't share it because um you know you can harm trans kids so that was a bit mysterious and I think I believed that as well and then in Australia we're pretty preoccupied with COVID for 2020 and 2021 but in September 2021 I um Got my copy of Abigail Schreier's book. <laughs> How did you get it? <laughs> oh, well, I ordered it. <laughs> that what made you yeah. order it? If you follow me, I like was trying you, to remember yeah. that. I was, yeah, yeah, I was trying to remember why, but I don't actually remember why. But yeah, I, I was interested. Oh, I honestly can't remember why, but um, maybe through Bernard Lane, maybe or. Oh, I hadn't kept in touch with anything okay. really. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I really don't can't remember. Sorry, but um. Okay. I was reading her book and I remember I was just sitting on my bed reading it and I got to the chapter about the influencers and, sorry, influencers, I'm saying. <laughs> and um, mm -hmm. and I took the time to look them up on YouTube as I was reading it about the ones that Abigail was, was referring to. And I was sitting there and I, I started feeling myself getting influenced and I wow. thought, oh... What hope have teenagers got is have, if I, as a you know middle-aged woman with a <laughs> stable and happy life, am starting to think that I really like that aesthetic of the streamlined teenage boy, you know, <laughs> thinking, oh, wouldn't it be great to, you know, not be so curvy or whatever, but just um, mm -hmm. wow. thought, what hope have teenagers got? And and then I was, I remember being frightened and sort of, I went to work the next day and saying, oh, I was talking to you know an older woman psychiatrist saying, oh, I've read this and I'm just very worried. <laughs> mm. What did she say? Did, did you have any anybody who was kind of echoing some of your concerns in your life? Oh, well, at that stage, I got the feeling that she understood. Okay. In fact, she was the one that framed it for me as a child protection issue, which has stuck with okay. me. Okay. But yeah. then the really sad thing about that is that she has never taken off her pronouns badges or rainbow lanyard or like so it's sort of actually that's something that is sad for me that can i just yeah. point to out know to, that, yeah that is very sad sorry i'm driving over you there but there was something oh, no, you that's said. Okay. uh i i think it's very important i i often think it's 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 helpful for parents too that what you did was the right thing to go and look at the influencers. Often the parents haven't checked them out. I'm like, watch them, watch them, get into where them, you know, so you know what, what's being said. And like a binder, put on a binder, you know what I mean? Check out the talking, 
Do you know what I mean? If you're a man, as in know what you're talking about. You know what I mean? I'm not saying do it for life or anything. I'm just in have some mm-hmm. sort of idea because it seems so exotic and they go, I don't know, it must be uncomfortable. And I'm like, it's in your house for the last two years. Find out how uncomfortable it is because you could know in a second. Once you put on a binder, you go, oh my God, get this off. You, you know what oh, I mean? It's, I... it's like a iron sheath. You know what I mean? Right. And yeah, it's I the same. Brave what to you... do that, Stella. <laughs> Yeah, oh, shocking. Mm. It was shocking when I put one on. And uh, sh- I just get it off me. Oh, do you know what I mean? Was what I felt. But the same with the influencers. When you watch it, you just see the world that's been created. It's so attractive. And mm. I just think you raised something. Mm-hmm. I think what you did was very wise. Just kind of mm-hmm. let me check this out. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then someone kind of framed it for you as a safeguarding issue and that stuck with you. Say more about that. Like, what do you think resonated when you heard it framed that way? Oh, I think it was because um, because at that stage back then, they were still very successful with the allegations of transphobia. And so mm. when she said that, it was like, oh, she's not thinking I'm transphobic. <laughs> she mm-hmm. understands that I'm worried. And so it felt... Exactly right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what, what happened, happened next? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So that was September 2021. And I think I spent, after that, I started talking more and thinking about it and <laughs> probably started listening to you guys. And, mm. and what happened next? I did keep a little list to prompt myself. I'll just have a look. Sure. Um, oh, that's right. I did, after that Abigail Shry book, I did send off an email about to one of the managers about my concern about the trans pride flags in the waiting rooms and the, like they were, they were plastered everywhere and um but I didn't get a response but when I I actually did this little timeline in preparation for talking to you two and I realized like really it was sort of like I like a bat out of hell in 2022 for me <laughs> with them, with them, with what I did um so I started 2022 by really um, worrying a lot more about the trans pride flag, so started emailing it. <laughs> it's not so funny that this modern life comes down to emailing. <laughs> and it's basically the the waiting list, the waiting room where the kids were sitting, was festooned really with with pride flags. And you thought, what well, what's going down here? Yeah, so there was a massive prize flag on the wall. When I say massive, it's like a meter and a half, and by a meter probably something like that, and then. There was two flags on the desk, and then a, 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 a on the glass between you know with the reception desk. There's glass protecting you from the yeah. people waiting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, especially with COVID these days. But um, on there they had this um A4 sheet telling parents why it was really important to use pronouns. What else was there? Little um, they also had little postcards of ally. You know the the pride flag with an ally, the word ally yeah. written on it. So yeah, there was lots going on in the waiting room. And so I started off by emailing my concerns and my bosses were, you know, dismissive. And then I went through HR to see if they would um, be interested. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I know it sounds ridiculous, but I was a bit... No, how did, know, how did you frame it? Were you were you saying I'm concerned about this because I, I think it's not neutral enough? Or, or like, yes. how did you frame your concern? Yes, exactly. I was saying I really think we need to hold a neutral space. We have a lot of, mm-hmm. um, you know, very... Um, traumatized kids that come through the waiting list and the waiting room, sorry, and mm-hmm. we don't want to be seen to be cheerleading them. We want to um, help them to figure out who they are, not sort of suggest 
to them what the best pathway is. And, and I, were, um, those, were those were those flags? That, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just saying that the HR asked me to send through photos of the um, what was what the waiting room looked like, and I did that. Sorry, what were you saying? Okay, um, I, I want to hear what HR had to say after, but I'm just trying to make sure I understand. Was this the waiting room of the entire hospital as an entity, or was this the waiting room of the gender clinic portion of the hospital, or? Oh, no, the gender clinic actually um, runs out of a building just behind the hospital. So this was the okay, waiting room. So this room. is the regular hospital. Oh, well, it's not the general hospital in that it's not the physical health. It's the mental health area. Right. Yeah, so it's right. the waiting room for the two mental health wards and the day program and and anyone else who's coming to see someone from mental health. Meaning they're seeing kids there that aren't even questioning their gender at all, but there's trans flags and pride flags everywhere. Yes, and often you get their siblings sitting in the waiting room too. And right, okay. yeah, it's a very family area. There's a little um, play area, or I think it's gone now, but they, there was a play area for the, um, you know, with toys and that for the little kids. And- but, you know, what, what Tasha's raising is such a good point. It's so irrelevant. What the hell? Like, uh, it's so random, right? We're going to stick in pride flags for no reason whatsoever yeah. in a waiting room for distressed teenagers who like being a distressed teenager and go to the psychiatric clinic you're not in you're, you're in a serious place yeah mentally yeah yeah okay so then what did hr say you sent them some photos did they take your complaint seriously or did they <laughs> respond <laughs> no, you're no, laughing no, so i'm guessing that's <laughs> <Sorry>. a no <laughs> I like, yeah i was so naive but um yeah no completely i was saying it was part of the hospital's strategy for inclusion with staff and patients and that it was um important Okay, so your complaints and concerns got nowhere. You recognize at this point, this is a safeguarding issue. I'm going to try and use the kind of chain of command and like raise my concerns. And then you said it was like a bat out of hell. So where where does that piece come in? <laughs> oh, maybe it's just <laughs> a bit slower than... <laughs> and before you tell us about the bat out of hell, Ed, yeah. did you know about the concept of ROGD? I presume you did because of Abigail Shire, where you start to yes. raise this as a concept and seeing if anybody would respond to it. Because it's kind of like a, it's a calling card when you say ROGD. Oh, I think I've always avoided that term because I know how okay. controversial it is. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you're being very selfly uh, selfish. Yeah, I think so. I, um, yeah, I was still at this stage learning about the issues too. So when you're more I like people- a, a, a lamb out of hell, really. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's true yeah i'm not sure i guess i'm sort of um not sure how people will perceive this uh, but um yes the next thing i did was um i thought oh i've got to find a way of you know letting people know that that i'm you know that i'm not going along with this and that i'm um seeing things that i don't think are right i mm-hmm. you know once again naively thought that if i just could connect with some other people in the hospital who um were worried too and I didn't know how to do it. And so I stupidly decided that the thing to do was to change my email signature, you know, where you have the pronouns. I um, I hadn't had my pronouns, but I decided, well, if people are able to, because everyone was putting their pronouns, I'll change mine to um, woman, adult human femur. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you did not even know how. <laughs> I, yeah, that I, is uh, the bad of hell. throws down the gauntlet (laughs) (laughs) and did you know I honestly thought I was trying to connect with people but I don't know know. and it's it's just interesting that like 
you know, 10, 15 years ago, there would have been nothing weird at all about just saying, I'm a woman, I'm a human yes. female. But I mean, it just goes to show how radically fast everything changed to a bizarro world to where, but, but of course, we in this world recognize how very <laughs> subversive that was to say. But you well, thought you were kind of signaling to like-minded people to, to connect and, and talk, yes, right? And just to be, um, like, I, on a, Kelly J. King didn't come to Australia till earlier this year. So this is all um, mid last year. Yeah. And so it wasn't that that woman, adult human female, was so known as some, um, as, you know. Oh, yeah. Also, I, I remember being you, and so many people I think listening will remember being you, as in you just thought, oh no, I just have to just say the basics here. People will get yeah. it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, just, I just have to say, remember, of course, I'm a woman adult. I can imagine, so imagine me thinking, I oh, know. it's fact, it's true. So. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly yeah, yeah. right. I, totally, I just thought, yeah. oh, how could they dispute that? Because yeah. it's, yeah. yeah, I got them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And how did that go down? How did that go down, Julian? <laughs> well, I got away with it for a couple of weeks and was, you know, feeling good about that. Um, and then I had to send an email to someone who worked in the gender clinic, and it crossed my mind, like, oh, maybe they, maybe they'll notice. Uh, but I didn't, oh, I didn't think to delete it or anything. So I did, and then of course that must have been like a, a bomb, flashing red light. Yeah, exactly. And so they quickly escalated it up to. Um, to my bosses and then I had to have a meeting about it um so and that was the so that was the first meeting with my boss where I really went through a lot of my concerns and with my boss um he set up the gender clinic and um has done a lot of the publicity for the gender clinic and has protected the gender clinic so Mm. he also like the district where I work there's about 55 child psychiatrists. It's massive. So it's a major employer of child psychiatrists. And we also employ the people. So uh, my boss employs the people that run the um, training program for the trainee psychiatrists. So okay. there's a lot of influence there, there. And then actually my boss also is the advisor to the government on child and adolescent psychiatry. So <sighs> this person is very influential and <clears throat> is, you know, set up the gender clinic and is... Um, connected to the affirmation model so so this is who I'm meeting with and um but at that stage just just to actually show you with the sure email signature he said to me now um you know the gender clinic people have raised this as a concern um they feel that it might can convey the impression that you're transphobic and oh. I think that the problem with the the signature is the word human <laughs> And even I knew at that stage that no, the problem is not human. <laughs> human has never been claimed to be a transphobic word. Never, never, yeah. never. <laughs> but he didn't believe me when I was trying to explain why. Um, yeah, the, the definition I beg of to differ, boss. Yeah. <laughs> oh my um, gosh! Yeah, so it was that level, and um, and then he he did borrow my Abigail Schreier book, oh, and I he? talked at length about. Yeah, he did. And hasn't given it back even. <laughs> Not that I might. <laughs> Just joking. Um, so we talked through things and I was trying to say, look, I'm really worried that um, this pathway will stop children from um, some children that will recover naturally from recovering. Yeah. And um, his point of view was, well, does that matter? 
and you know is that transphobic if if you mm. um, care about that? And then his mm-hmm. other point of view was um, one that's a bit unusual for a doctor, which was I was saying, look, the outcomes of these interventions are really serious. You know, um, lack of sexual function, you know, the surgery complications, and he was saying he seemed to really believe that what I considered, you know, oh, you know, bullshit research about good outcomes after vaginoplasty, oh, yeah. about satisfaction mm. and ability to orgasm. He was sort of saying that that was all true, which is, it's weird because, you know, doctors tend to be much more cautious about surgery because they've seen yeah. people with complications. So it's unusual to find doctors sort of saying that they're, it's all rosy. Yeah, so that didn't go well at all. Um, and I got a directive to um, remove the email signature. And at that stage, it was also thought that I had a lack of education, so I was encouraged to get an attachment to the gender clinic where you you know, shadow the people working there for a couple of days. Um, so I was encouraged to reach out to the gender clinic and arrange that, although that never got arranged, even stage, though I tried to keep arranging it. Were you very rattled or were you very determined at this stage? Mm-hmm. Or both? Or Oh... Oh gosh, it's I I don't think I was as rattled as I should have been. I think I Yeah. These are people like I'm sort of working in an environment where I have known people even though yeah. I, like I've known these people for actually some decades and I'd actually been campus director in the hospital of mental health um for 3 years previously. So I sort of felt really connected in the hospital and really like hospital was my home and really proud of the hospital like it's Yes, Whoa. I just felt like I was doing something that was part of my job. Yeah, by raising concerns, and I, yeah, I didn't quite. Yeah. I mean, some of the ways I did it weren't sensible, but it was with good intent. We hope you're enjoying this conversation as much as we are. We just wanted to take a quick moment and say thank you to all of our listeners. Your support is the fuel that keeps this train running. So please be sure to like and subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcast platforms. And do be sure to check out the conversations that are happening on YouTube in the comments section. We think that we have some of the smartest, most engaged viewers out there, and we really appreciate all of the interactions. Also, we produce additional bonus content every week for our listener community on Patreon. Go to widerlenspod.com and click on join our listener community. Your financial support means a lot to us. And for those of you who are in need of parenting support and resources, we each have parent coaching membership groups. So please do check those out. You can find links to both of them at widerlenspod.com or in the show notes. And of course, you can buy our book, When Kids Say They're Trans, out now in the UK and coming out very soon in the US. Thank you so much. Now back to the show. Yeah, I mean, in, in the way you described that conversation with your supervisor, like you were very openly just trying to talk freely with him and show him like, oh, check out this information or Mm. check out this or that. Like you were not, uh, you didn't seem to be scared and trying to keep things, you know, very private or quiet. Mm. You were just genuinely trying to connect and have this conversation. Uh, Yeah. I I was the very same, Gillian. I remember when the film came out and I was in Ireland and I was just like, no, no, you you need to hear this. This is something Mm -hmm. extraordinary is happening. Mm -hmm. And I've read about it and I've checked it out. I'm, I'm just delivering something that as Mm -hmm. soon as you hear it, you'll get it because it's shot. Yeah. So I was, I remember being you and whoa, it's been a rocky road. (laughs) 
yeah. 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 Keep going, so. I just lent my boss my Abigail Schreier book. And so then I got the idea, well, if he's going to read it, he's going to need everyone else to sort of have some of the same information. And so I got this next idea, which was to um, <laughs> get 50 by 50 Abigail Schreier books <laughs> and um, <laughs> send them you. out to my colleagues. <laughs> and um, so, you know, that took me a little bit of time where I um, So I got the books and then I, I put a handwritten note into each one saying, you know, because I know my colleagues well and saying, you know, dear, you know, their name. And then yeah. um, I read this book and it's made oh, me really worried. Yeah. Are you worried too? If you're not, I really want to know why because I'd like to be less worried. Um, oh. If you want to talk about it, let me know. And Did then, you say um, 50? 50, 50, yeah, because we're a big district. I didn't send it to all the, the directors. So you put some um, money into of, it. Like that's, you know, you, yeah, well, yeah. My job's sort of given me money, you know, it's a, it's a good job and I thought it was yeah. the least I could do it and it is the least I could do. And I also um, it was I also managed to get some of the paediatricians in the hospital too because sometimes people return them and so I'd, well, you know, send them out again. And um, I think a lot of them did end up on people's bedside tables. They, but, wow. yeah, yeah so it was, that was do, well, do I think you... they sat in the bedside table and didn't get read. Unread. <laughs> Maybe. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So did um, people come back to you and say, how dare you share this terrible book with me? Or did you have people say, oh, my gosh, this is exactly what we're seeing in our clinic? What was the reaction from your colleagues? Oh, it was almost all silence except for maybe four or five people that emailed me to thank me for the book. Uh-huh. Um, maybe only one or two people said they were a bit worried, but no one wanted to talk about it or I sort of had this imagination, you know, I'd imagine that we might form a little group and do peer review a journal club sort of on the issue with, yeah. you know, <laughs> I these ideas see where that we you could, would go. And, yeah. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely yeah. wasn't that response. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So that was, um, and then what happened next was, oh, so then we get to about mid last year, so about July 2022, yeah. And because I, the problem in the hospital is that we were all just using everyone's preferred pronoun and are not treating the gender dysphoria as anything to be treated or looked at or thought about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I was getting really worried because we're just having all these clinical meetings where we're talking about kids with, you know, anorexia and, but, you know, saying that they're male or saying that they're boys rather than they, their biological sex being female. And so I felt like we were offering a really poor level of mental health care. Mm-hmm. So I started not using preferred pronouns in a team meeting for the for the patient. Um, and then the team leader noticed and talked to me about it and I said I wasn't comfortable. And so I think straight after that the team leader ran to the to the you know the boss's office and had a massive long conversation about that and that's sort of when it all kicked off in earnest the seriousness of it all <clears throat> yeah so and wasn't there um, something in the waiting room the the the, the, the pride flags kind of got you at some point when was oh that? that came a bit yeah. later I'll, I'll tell you yeah. about that but I'll just say that at this point where I then have meeting then so then I had a series of meetings with my bosses about the pronoun issue and they became very serious like more than just one boss in the room and um, very stressful and 
I got, you know, a written directive to um, always use the preferred pronoun. And then I started thinking, oh, look, this doesn't feel right. And I started asking around about lawyers. Oh, oh wow. And so I am so lucky because I found a, a law firm that um, would take my situation on. And that's, uh, I'm actually not, with, with me, I'm not like in any way religious whatsoever and I'm actually not political at all, but this is a Christian law firm mm-hmm. and they um, believe in religious freedom and they're very much into wanting to have the capacity for debate in the public square. But, well, I think you know, I know people's beliefs. Yeah. The Human Rights Law Alliance. Yeah. I think in terms of, I gather that they're actually in their office, they're all sorts of different Christians and they might <laughs> have quite, you know, vigorous disputes about various things in the Bible or whatever, I'm not <laughs> sure. But, um, but so they're really, I mean, gosh, they've been so good to me and, um, oh, there's such a lifeline through these dark sort of days in my office where I'd be getting these emails and um, have to respond to them. And, you know, of course I had no idea that I could send these emails off to um, the person that was helping me from that law firm and, and he had a gift for writing and just a lovely style and he would write back with suggested responses and um, sometimes a couple of times a day even if it was intense and so, yeah, it was so wonderful. And, so, um, yes. so keep going. Yeah, sorry. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, what happened next was, um, so oh, so just with that, they were their focus was on trying to help me to keep my job, although I didn't really think my job was in danger at that point at all. Um, but um, also I talked to them about wanting to challenge the principal, and so that's when we started preparing the Human Rights Commission complaint, um, which was it ended up being lodged mid this year. So it took about 12 months to prepare. So that was the way that I thought that this, I could challenge this an appropriate way to challenge it. Um, so I was sort of biding my time. So just thinking about what happened next. Um, oh, that's right. With those meetings with my bosses, they broadened the issue out to not just would I use preferred pronouns, but would I refer children to the gender clinic? Mm. And they were saying that it's similar to abortion where if you don't feel comfortable with abortion, you have to refer to someone who will refer for an abortion or mm-hmm. a mechanism like that. So it was some, it's getting broadened out to these extra issues. And then I think I, I was still in that mode of thinking, oh, if they only understood. Yeah. And so yeah. I did yeah. a um, presentation because we all have to, you know, there's an education roster and you have to give a presentation. So I thought, oh, well, I'll do a presentation on this and then they'll understand. You remind me of and me. It's like irrepressible. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you just I understand. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so, but, um, so yes, when the fifty so this when the fifty books didn't work, so then I did a presentation. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, I know, I know, yeah. I know. Oh, and um, and that's um, that was where I started because I ended up putting a presentation on YouTube earlier this year. Um, which I'll tell you about that in the sequence of things. But that's when I started sort of bringing that together and use some. Like I, you know, when you interviewed Ellie from England yeah. who'd oh, gone yeah. through the Tavistock early on? Yeah. Like I used some of that interview and I also got the footage of off YouTube of from the BBC where 
you know, when she was little and they showed yes. how yes. Yes. she was clip. in her gender dis. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. great. So I was able to put that in and then show her a clip from, from your podcast oh, talking about you. how she's now yeah. happy as a adult lesbian and okay. how that's she needed amazing. to work through that. Yeah, so I thought it was quite powerful, um, but it, yes, didn't have the effect I wanted. Um, um, was the room hostile? Was it obvious that this wasn't going anywhere or what was the response? Yeah, well, the room tends to be silent, but then there were um, people from working in the gender clinic there, the, uh, so they tend to um, speak up and express concerns and it's clear that they're obviously, you know, very unhappy. And then, the yeah, one of the bosses in the hospital also sort of was aligned with that. So, yeah, I think I was... The main they were saying that it was biased. Okay, and I was so. It's yeah, really was it's just remarkable. That. I just want to just check in here. Did anybody know that you had hired solicitors to help mm. you behind the scenes, or was this not information anyone knew yet? Not in the hospital. <clears throat> okay. No, I, okay. Um, yeah, the, the solicitors were great in that their whole agenda was, oh, you know, let's yeah. keep trying to turn down the temperature. Um, nice. They didn't they didn't sort of attend meetings with me or anything because no. it was all about trying okay. to keep things um, from escalating. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So that happened. And then, then the, the thing happened that sort of sent me over the edge. <laughs> so I have told this story um, in another setting, but I'll let you know. But um, so, so I was working in the consultation liaison team, which is the team that looks after the patients in the pediatric wards so medical and surgical wards, and mm-hmm. they refer to our team if those children are having mental health difficulties. Okay. And so we go into those wards and see the child there with their family and, you know, try to help. And so our team had a education session which was being run by a nurse from the gender clinic. And this topic of the education session was chest binding. And what she said was that the gender clinic were running chest finding education sessions for all the school youth-based health nurses, which they work in all the public schools across Queensland, all the state schools. So they were running education sessions for all the schools and they were also running a chest binder fitting clinic, chest binder fitting sessions at the hospital. Wow. And she she said that they were the most fun part of her job and she was saying, you know, it's so great to, to see how happy the young people are when they put on their binder and um and I started feeling a bit sick and um sorry and okay I just thought that we're really colluding with the with the disgust that kids yeah that girls feel for their bodies in adolescence sometimes yeah and then she said this thing that just completely set me over the edge which was that she said that chest binders are expensive and so um, often once a girl's had a top surgery, she'll donate the binder to a local, um, you know, non-governmental organisation, Open Doors, and um, that binder will be given to another girl to use. And something about that just yeah. made me go yeah. a bit crazy, really. It's, um, sort of like I was sobbing in my office that I'm a bit of a cryer. So. <laughs> but, I was, yeah, I was really shocked and horrified and, um, you know, they had all the binders there that we we have passed around for us to all not dry on, but <laughs> just touch and yeah. So I was horrified, and then I thought, oh my god, I've got to do something. <laughs> and that was, you know, I got into a silly mindset where I thought I've got to start, 
you know, doing more. And um, so I started getting worried about those trans pride flags again in the waiting room because, <laughs> mm. I, you know, I was having to walk past them all the time. So I emailed, oh, no, no, I went and spoke directly to the two managers of the wards where the, you know, which is part of their sort of like um, responsible for the waiting room. And I said, oh, look, I just think we should reduce the representation down to the same size as the Aboriginal flag and the Torres Strait Islander flag just so that we've got equal representation. I think it's really important That's that we good, don't. clever, clever yeah, angle. Uh-huh. fair enough. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they said, um, I spoke to them separately, but they were both saying, oh, no, those those flags went up for some pride celebration, you know, ages ago and they just never got taken down and they're provided to the hospital by this um, you know, charity called Minus 18, um, which, and they showed, actually one of them showed me the box of all these um, badges and rainbow lanyards and it's amazing the boxes and boxes of um, yeah. pride uh, stuff that is getting sent to hospitals. And so he was saying, oh, it's it's from this, this is how we've got it, Whoa. so it's not actually hospital property. And they both said that they thought it was reasonable to to take um, them down and just have a small representation. And so then I did go ahead and do that. I just, you know, I did it during daylight hours. I didn't sneak in or anything. But um, it immediately, you know, raised the alarm. And Were, were you was... scared going in or were you saying, right, I'm going in and I'm going to pull down these flags and this is, what were you thinking? Oh, well, I was going into the reception area and I was saying, oh, yes, we've just decided that, you know, we want to reduce the representation down to the same size as the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags. And so um, is it okay if we just take this down, but I'll put this one here so that we still have the representation? Okay, okay. so you, know, you, were, you maybe. were, yeah, yeah. But, I, yeah, but I think I was faking it in that I was scared inside. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And what happened? Oh, oh, that's when that was, because um, that was, then it went not just my bosses but up to the hospital executive who were, really very upset and that's when they started to um, get very serious and so I ended up getting this formal written direction direction from the hospital executive, um, you know, essentially which is <clears throat> a strong warning letter and it um, specified that I must always um, pr- use the preferred pronouns of children um, or their name and always take an affirming approach to any child with gender dysphoria and always refer any gender questioning child to the gender clinic and then never take down anything um, like that off the walls. Wow. wow. Anything rainbow so that, off the walls. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, so that all came through. It was kind of lucky because I got COVID and I had to take, you know, got quite sick, so I had to take a few weeks off work, so that meeting got delayed and then I finally got that um, letter in the very first days of January this year. Oh. Yeah, so... Yeah, so that's where now we're in this year. Oh, sorry, it's a bit of a long-winded story. <laughs> um, so the lawyers were telling me to be super careful, and I was being super careful. I'd been lucky and I'd been given this amazing gift in that they had said that I had to use the preferred pronouns, but that it was acceptable for me to use the child's name in Lou so I could still work. And... But they'd also put in this clause saying, but there may be times when you can't do that and you must use the preferred pronoun, in which case that makes it still a directive that I must do it, which mm-hmm, has legal mm-hmm. consequences. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, yeah, so I was being very, well, I say I was being very careful, but I was being very careful at work. <clears throat> and I had been told right at the start, my boss had said, in these sort of situations where you've got this viewpoint, you've got to be careful on social media. So make sure that you take any uh, link between you, your photo, and yeah. where you work. Make sure you take all that or anything like that offline, off you know LinkedIn or or whatever. And so I went through. I wasn't you know big on social media, but I did, dutifully did that. And I was told that as that I've got the right to engage in to to participate in discourse. political events. Yeah, discourse. Yes. Yeah. As long as I don't say you know, my job or my employer. Yeah. Yeah. So that was sort of told to me in an, like without me asking and I was like, oh, okay, all right. Well, and so that was quite good. And then, mm. and then, so then I heard that Kelly J. Key was coming to Australia. <laughs> and um, so this, she came in March. So I'd got that lawful direction in January and I was keeping my head down at work. And, but I, I thought, oh, well, I've got the right to um, participate in, events if I don't say my name and my employer or my profession and so and that was the brilliant thing about the let women speak rallies is that you could just get up there and talk yeah so I did <laughs> I um I was, like I was as nervous as hell uh, yeah and um but it was so wonderful to get up there and just say my concerns yeah so good for you it was really good and what happened then <laughs> Oh, well, so the Brisbane Let Women Speak rally was very friendly and positive. There was a, you know, opposing side that was chanting loudly, but it still felt very warm. But then, um, you know, I was watching online the other rallies as they progressed, and you might know, but the Melbourne rally was a wonderful rally but got got, um, mischaracterised as being affiliated with Nazis. Yeah. And then that led to the rallies really when they went to Hobart down in Tasmania, the rally just went terribly wrong. And the next one after that was Canberra and I thought, oh, I'm going to go. <laughs> so because I was sort of worried that things had gone wrong. So wanted to try and help. Sorry. <laughs> I'm it's sort okay. of a cryo. Why, why do you think this is such an emotional topic for you? I mean, it's, it is for so many of us. What's like? What's going on when you start to get this flood of emotions here? I don't know. I think there are reasons, um, reasons in my background why it's important to me, but um, they're not sort of in my mind when I'm talking about it. When I feel teary about what happened with Kelly J, mm-hmm. I feel sad for the women mm-hmm. or for us. But- mm-hmm. And I just remember, like, Kelly J was just sort of struggling in terms of... <laughs> just, yeah. She's such a lion. Like, she's such a strong woman. I but, think... Yeah. As, yeah, as well. The Sorry. Women, I kind of get the impression, something about Australia, maybe it's the size of the land or something, but it sounds... The isolation seems to be very severe in Australia. Mm. So I can see why the idea of a coming together which I don't gather has happened very much at all in Australia. You know, you do yes. need conferences. You do need coming together because it just sounds like it's completely disparate. Everybody's just solo on their own having their struggles. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we yeah. did get together and it had gone so well in Melbourne. Like those Melbourne rally speeches were wonderful. 
yeah. and it was ruined by this, oh. you know, sort of almost conspiracy between the government and the media to try and discredit it. Yeah, bad faith. So it was tragic. Yeah, yeah, bad faith. Yeah, very much. So. And then it was seeing Kelly J in Tasmania trying to hold it together in the face of quite a lot of threat. Unbelievable. It's awful. Yeah. Awful. yeah, exactly. Disgraceful. Can you yeah. catch us up to mid-April? What happened yeah. in mid-April of this yes. year? Yes. So um, so those rally speeches had, had been done and they'd seemingly gone well and there was no implications or consequences. And then I was at work and um, <clears throat> it was just a usual day and I um, unexpectedly, unexpectedly got a patient complaint um, from a young person. And unfortunately, I can't sort of say much about it because it's covered by patient confidentiality. Mm-hmm. But it was very unexpected. It was just a quick sort of 20-minute consultation where I'd popped in between meetings. <laughs> and I hadn't had a patient complaint for quite a few years, actually, but they do happen, like my colleagues have had them. They do happen from quite time you know, time. quite often, actually, and yeah. often you know, it's misunderstandings or yeah. expectations that can't be met by how the system's set up. And usually... The hospital approach is to just try and understand the complaint and listen and um, you might, you know, you try and find a way forward so you might get a second opinion or try and correct a misunderstanding or apologise if you've accidentally, um, you know, offended or hurt the patients, um, you know, disappointed the patient. Um, But they didn't do that at all. They just, uh, yes, straight away removed me from clinical duties. So I initially got to work and I was told I needed a meeting at 8.30 in the morning. And so I went and then this statement, my boss read the statement out saying, <coughs> you, you, you'd be rostered for work but not required for duty. So um, I had to go home and then they followed it up four days later with a, a formal letter of suspension, which initially was for two weeks, but then got extended for another two weeks and then it's just been extended each time and now it's um, three months. It's been... Um, yeah, six months since it all happened. I, I remember meeting you a few months ago and uh, I was trying to woo you over and I did, I think, successfully <laughs> to the Killarney Group, <laughs> the think tank for Jen's yes. Act. And yes. It just sounded so frightening. It was so kind of uncertain and it was it was just like, what position am I in? I, I, I've taken mm-hmm. a position yeah. around gender. You hadn't actually done anything wrong. It's just you've gone against the grain. That's what's happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I didn't actually get the patient complaint for two months. And so I didn't know what I was accused of. And I started wondering whether I was getting accused of, you know, having sexually assaulted the patient or something. Like I actually, you know, of course I thought, well, surely that would be something. But I just had no idea. So I started to sort of, yeah, I just had no idea. So, um, yeah, it was. And then, yeah. So, but then I got the patient complaint and they also added on the Let Women Speak rally speeches. So that's the gist of what the hospital's allegations are. I know you can't talk about the patient complaint, but. Can you say whether or not your views on early transition or rushing kids in transition had something to do with the complaint? Like the fact that they included the rallies makes me, I mean, I just want to clarify what we can clarify. Yeah, it was a young person who was engaged with the gender clinic, but my role was in no way to assess them for gender things. It was another form of assessment um, it was a brief engagement. Um, yeah. So, and what was the substance of your let women speak? Was it fast tracking children, or what was it that you said? Let's say. 
Oh, well, the first one in Brisbane, I talked about the experience that we all had as teenagers of connecting to people through our appearance and how that was a way to sort of manage the uncertainty and anxiety of adolescence by nice. mm-hmm. structuring it through, mm-hmm. you know, communicating through our body and mm-hmm. how we all had gone through that. But luckily we left it behind and found people that have loved, that love us and we can just, yeah. you know, <laughs> don't have to be obsessed mm-hmm. with our appearance. And then with the Canberra one, I was trying to think about, oh, this has gone wrong and what do women need to hear at this point to try and bounce back. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh, and then so I obviously just obviously went on to talk about the gender issue with kids because yeah. that's my yeah. main very, very serious worry. Well, I think what we might do at this stage is talk about your appearance in the, is it called Four Points or Four Corners documentary? Oh, Four Corners, yes. Four yes, Corners. Yes. So maybe we'll save that for our um, listener exclusives content. and we'll talk to you a little bit more about how you talk about these things in real life if you do um oh yes but your, your story quickly is just, so remarkable i'll just tell you here. one thing though yeah please oh, thank you i'll i'll just say that i did do a brave thing was that um which was after the complaint in mid-april i was had been booked in for some time to do a lecture to the all huh. the training psychiatrists in queensland in child and adolescent psychiatry in mm. may and um I was warned by my boss not to, you know, that you could be breaching the code of conduct by doing that and other people told me not to do it, but I went ahead with it. Good for you. <laughs> and yeah, I did. And um, and then I ended up putting that video on YouTube um, because we hadn't had any education for psychiatrists in Australia that wasn't from an affirmative point of view. And so, and that sort of was a really good thing in the end because I think it's had, you know, more than 2,000 views, but that's probably 90% psychiatrists in Australia and wow. so I think that helped with opening up the conversation a bit. Of course, yeah. no one watched the whole thing or a few people and did, but um, yeah. Just, so just that, before we go in, you, you've been as brave as a lion for somebody who comes across. Yes, so you really I have been. Um, <laughs> did you, you get, because we know there's um, some some great, you know, psychiatrists like Roberto D'Angelo and James Bardini and Patrick Clark. Did you, did you get? Diana Kenny. I mean, there's yeah, a lot did of you meet? Did you meet them or get to know any of them? I have subsequently. Yeah. yeah, it's been so wonderful and it's so interesting meeting these people that, you know, go back many years in this where I'm mm-hmm. much newer. You're new, and yeah. Yeah, so, but yeah, I'm new. So it's, yeah, it's been a real help to be able to, to process some of what's happened with them. Yeah, And you, you have, you're now on kind of extended leave. You haven't lost your job, but you don't feel like it's coming back anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yep. Well, we'll be curious to hear what you may be doing next because um, you definitely have a a way of being and speaking that yeah. is very, um, very polite, very careful, very gentle, and yet the bravery that you've shown against all odds and completely isolated circumstances is so remarkable. So <laughs> thank you. It's inspiring. You're really it's, like blazing yeah. a trail in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> We're really grateful to have had you on. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Lovely to be here. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. 
Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.